Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, January 18th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. This week, we focus on the impact the Omicron variant is having across the nation, and in particular, whether or not the federal government is doing enough to help battle the spread of this prevalent strain of COVID-19. Next, has the pandemic changed religion in Canada forever? And what does the future look like for religious services, potentially? Some research on the topic indicates that some religions may be non-existent by the year 2040. We discuss with Ashley Stewart, national reporter for Global News. The provincial government has expressed interest in creating creating a provincial police force to replace the RCMP in Alberta. But what impact does this change have on smaller communities? We put that question to the mayor of Okotoks, Tanya Thorne. And finally, can music and a mindfully made playlist actually improve your mental health and your well-being? We speak with a music therapist and author who's written a book on the topic and says the health benefits of our favorite songs should not be overlooked. Every week, we have the chance to talk with Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block, Mercedes Stevenson. This week, Mercedes spoke with Canada's health minister about the federal government's response to the spread of Omicron and the impact of vaccine mandates or, you know, potential vaccine mandates, and particularly with the talk in Quebec. Mercedes joins us now with the details. Good morning to you, Mercedes. Hey, good morning. How are you guys? Good, good. Thank you for taking the time with us. Before we get to the meat of the matter, you are uh, in Ontario. What's it like weather-wise mm. in Ottawa? <laughs> well, it's finally not either like minus 30 or um, several feet of snow. We actually set a record here in Ottawa yesterday for snowfall. Very, very pretty. Uh, but my goodness, is there a lot of it? Wow. So it's, it's clear and sunny this morning and cold, um, but uh, we're briefly out of the deep freeze. We're supposed to start to uh, plunge back down into the high minus 20s, near minus 30s on the weekend again. Wow. Incredible. The amount of snow, the video, the pictures is just phenomenal. It is. Uh, I was watching people walk yesterday. <laughs> I worked to. from home <laughs> yesterday morning because I couldn't see anything out my windows. Um, and people were walking down the middle of the street because, like, there were no sidewalks. Mm. Uh, and when I went out last night, I jumped uh, <laughs> out of the car and underestimated the snowbank <laughs> by a little bit. It was definitely higher than my boots. So <laughs> well, from from one <laughs> quite a bit. Yeah, well, you know, and it, it's so much fun when you're a child, not so much when you're mm, adulting, right? True. Um, let's break this down because you did have a, a, a big focus on another storm called Omicron on the West Block this week. What did you learn from your guests as far as the federal government, their push forward to, to battle Omicron? Have they done, an, done enough to help Canadians cope with not only Omicron, but this fifth wave that we're in? Well, I think that's that's a big question, and it's also a question that, is probably perceived differently in different parts of Canada because so much of the role of fighting uh, Omicron is provincial, right? Healthcare is provincial, but the federal government provides money. The federal government creates some of the regulations, for example, entering and exiting Canada. Um, and the federal government sets a lot of the tone, right? These are leaders, whether people uh, would have chosen to elect them or not, depending on your particular political leanings, these are the people who've been elected to lead the country, and, and they do have influence when they speak. So we wanted to talk to uh, Jean-Yves Duclos, 
who is the still relatively new health minister about this, he was gone sort of when the federal government made a lot of the big decisions at the beginning, or not, I shouldn't say gone, he had come into the role, he was in a completely different role in cabinet. That was Patty Hyde, but he has taken over. Uh, and so we wanted to find out, because I know there was a lot of concern from folks about vaccine mandates, whether that might be something federal. Now, of course, um, when we talk about vaccine mandates, there's two different things. There are already some that exist, and those are things like whether it's provincial and you're trying to go into a restaurant, you have to show you're vaccinated, or federally, if you want to get on a plane, you have to show you're vaccinated. But what they're talking about in Quebec would be actually making people pay essentially a financial penalty if they're not vaccinated, a tax, as it were. Um, and, and we don't know exactly what that might look like. And the federal government wasn't really clear on whether or not they supported that. So we wanted to talk to the health minister about that. He basically says he thinks vaccine mandates work. However, according to the Canada Health Act, you cannot make people pay to get access. And he says that will remain in place. That, of course, doesn't rule out a government taxing you, though, at tax season. That's different than paying for access when you go to a hospital. Um, So they won't quite come out and say, I think they're waiting to see what happens uh, with Francois Legault. Um, Legault, of course, is a very skilled politician of two. Of course, he, he dropped this. Um, the day after, you know, his top health official resigned, changed the conversation very quickly. Will he stick by it? We'll see. Um, It was an effective tactic in getting, you know, several thousand people to sign up to get vaccinated. But in the long term, it may be more divisive than anything else. So we'll have to kind of wait and see at this point. Um, But the federal government is giving no indication that they at any point would start looking at financial penalties for people who aren't vaccinated. Yeah, and divisive seems to be the word, doesn't it? Uh, you know, we look at other things too, especially the issue of truckers having to be vaccinated in order to cross the U.S. border. That's also causing a lot of divide across the country. Does the federal government stand behind that despite the, the, the pushback they're getting from the industry? They do, Sue. They say it was the right decision. And and it wasn't just the decision. It was the way it was executed. And I'm sure you guys were tracking this, but it was crazy. It was supposed to kick in. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, the CBSA came out and told uh, Canadian Press, which is a Canadian wire news service, that it was it was going to be delayed, that it wasn't going to take place. And the next day, the federal government came back and said, that information is false. We're still on schedule. You have to be vaccinated. Well, that means some unvaccinated truckers left and went into the United States thinking they were going to be able to come back, and now they're going to have to come back in quarantine. Obviously, that is an issue if driving a truck is your living and you cannot get out and drive that truck. Um, so very frustrated trucking industry. Um, the flip side of this, though, is that the U.S. is going to be introducing the same rules on January 22nd. So it is going to be a situation where you cannot cross either side of the border without being vaccinated. The big question we don't have an answer to yet is, how many trucks will that take off the road and what will that do to the already strained supply chain? Um, and, and that's sort of the thing that no one seems to be able to answer at this point. Mercedes, you also had the chance on the program to speak with Dr. Peter Singer, Special Advisor to the World Health Organization, General, uh, Director General. rather. Uh, what does the WHO believe needs to be done to help prevent future variants looking beyond COVID-19? He says the number one thing is to vaccinate the developing world because that is where the WHO believes these strains are going to develop, not the unvaccinated population in Canada, the massive unvaccinated population outside of Canada in places like uh, Africa and parts of Asia where 
you can ship them the vaccine, but they don't even have needles to put it in people's arms. And Canada has been better than a lot of other countries at making sure we're sending full packages so those doses can actually be delivered with the needles to put them into people. Um, but it's a very, very difficult situation. You saw how hard it was to vaccinate people here. We're a G7 country. Um, so you can imagine that when a country like Mali that is in turmoil suddenly gets a dose of vaccines dropped on them with no warning out of the West, right, they have the vaccines, uh, but there's no ability to execute or it's a, it's a very limited ability. It's very challenging. So they are saying that they need countries to have 70% of their people vaccinated by the middle of the year or more strains essentially are going to keep developing. But that concern is really being directed at like South America and Africa continents where there are countries that have very, very low vaccination rates. Um, and that will mean basically countries like ours taking a lead to not only distribute the dose, which increasingly is becoming less and less of a limited issue, but to actually provide full packages to help with the organization, to do all that kind of stuff. However, I will say, compounding factor we talked to him about, there's a real concern that if we keep needing booster shot after booster shot, countries are going to hoard. They're not going to want to send those vaccines to the developing world in case they have to give their population a fourth, a fifth, you know, another booster shot. Um, So that could really complicate things. We are not getting out of this anytime soon, are we? Uh, I feel like I don't want to jinx it. Yeah. I hope okay. we do. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. We won't. We won't jinx it any I hope further. So. Yeah, I know all of us uh, exactly. Thank you so much as always for joining us, Mercedes. Appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block. And I should remind you, it airs on Global TV, obviously, but The West Block re-airs Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on 770 CHQR. Over the first time since 1985, people with reported religious affiliations has dipped below 68%. With COVID affecting the way people worship, will religious institutions in Canada ever recover? With details, we're joined this morning by Ashley Stewart, national reporter for Global News. Good morning to you, Ashley. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, guys. How are you? Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay, so you, you delved into this. It was was COVID. Can you blame it as the, the sort of the sole cause of the decline in numbers for those who who believe in and and are going regularly to church? No, absolutely not. So the decline was already being seen for like uh, the last four or five decades or so. So. All of these, most of these studies have actually been done prior to COVID. So people are kind of just trying to figure out what things that go post-pandemic, but basically we were already in a sharp decline much before the pandemic even even kind of reared its head. I'm wondering, Ashley, uh, you know, we're having a really bad connection with you. Can we call you back in uh, in one second here? Yeah, sure. Okay, good. We'll uh, catch up with Ashley Stewart, uh, national reporter for Global News. We'll try to redial her and get a clearer signal for her. Um, it's interesting to me because I can understand that feeling of fellowship in person. Mm-hmm. And I, I am, you know, I really don't have a religious affiliation. Mm-hmm. Having said that, spent a lot of time around the church growing up. And I know that, you know, Cubs, Scouts, yeah, and too. Beavers, we were in the halls and, you know, helping out with whatever we could. You went to Sunday school as a kid Absolutely. before you, you graduated yeah. to being able to sit with the adults. Been to people's baptisms and obviously been to weddings and funerals. But I think people have sort of found a way to do that on their own. Well, yeah, yes. And no, I, 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 what I'm saying is I don't think, you know, that online you get that same feeling. So more with Ashley Stewart. Are you there, Ashley? I am. Can you hear me oh, better that now? Sounds, That's I, better. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we've got you clear, <laughs> Isabel. Uh, we're wondering, you know, did your investigation find that the dip in religious affiliations was similar across all regions of the country? Or were there different, uh, you know, pockets where you did see different results in different numbers? 
So I didn't look specifically into the regions. I was kind of looking a bit more into different denominations. Um, I know that Quebec, though, is it, it tends to be more religious than, say, BC. BC's um, level of religion is always lagged behind, and I think that's. I mean, statistics kind of show that there's a difference in ty- in terms of immigration and movement of people and things like that. But the most interesting thing I think is is the difference in denominations. Like religion is not declining across the board. Things uh, religions such as um, Islam. Sikhism, Hinduism, and those kind of smaller minority religions are really being driven by immigration. So they have gone from being, you know, accounting for Uh, 1.7% of Canadians for um, Islam to up to 3.7% of Canadians. And that's almost the same amount as as once massive religions like the United Church and Anglicanism and things like that. So what took the biggest drop? Was it Catholicism then? Yeah, it, it it is those Western religions that are seeing the highest rate of declines. And, and people are saying that it's just kind of because life doesn't revolve around the church anymore. You know, yeah. back in the 17th century kind of thing, everything, I mean, the whole town revolved around the church. People would go there for entertainment, for religion, for everything, to meet people. And now there are so many other places you can go to do that. So it just life has kind of moved on. Ashley, I don't want to put you on the spot, but is this a Canadian phenomenon or are we seeing this in in other parts of the world, for example? It's definitely not a Canadian phenomenon. It's 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 a, almost a Western phenomenon because, I mean, if you go to, say, uh, South America and those kind of places, you're not seeing that massive decline in, in Catholicism and things like that. It's, it's staying relatively steady, if not um, increasing. But Western, I, I guess people in, in Western societies just have other things. I mean, there are so many things competing for your time on the weekend, on a Saturday. If you want to go to the synagogue, there's, there's sport, you know. On Sunday, there's there's other things going on. So it's, it's just about where you place your kind of, your interest and where your priorities lie. Ashley, would you say religion and specifically organized religion then is less important to the younger generations, hence the reason why we suspect it may die out eventually? Definitely. I, the, the stats can um, data shows that the, the demographics are, are incredibly skewed towards the older generation, which is why there isn't that generation coming through to replace people. So while people don't think it's going to die out completely, it is going to be kind of like a, a minority um, fringe you know, kind of community. Um, like, I mean, United loses one church a week and Anglicanism, they think that, I mean, you guys said it before, that they were projecting that they might run out of members by 2040 if something drastic wasn't done. So it really will, I mean, it's not going to die out completely, but it will be a very small minority of people that, that are going to church every weekend. Ashley, you know, we have changed as a society. Uh, we don't have as much free time. And you, like you're saying, we get community connection from, from other sources and online. So we have changed. Have, in your research, did you see anywhere where some of these religions that are having trouble keeping numbers are looking at making changes to the way they do things that so steeped in tradition? I think there's, I mean, churches have always been one of those kind of places that have said, this is how things are done and we don't change mm-hmm. just as a fad or to keep up with the times or anything like that. But I think, I mean, the the Anglican, the members of the Anglican congregation that I spoke to were kind of saying that 
COVID has been this catalyst of change that was kind of, it's been ready for a long time. So it's things like virtual services that might continue, um, the fact that people can move away from a church and still be connected to that home um, base that they had, whereas usually, I mean, back in the day, if you moved, you would have to find a new church and a new community and things like that. It's things like YouTube services and masses with um, bulletins and things like that. Um, One point of contention, obviously, for um, Christianity is the communion and going back and like sharing the cup, which a lot of people are not necessarily willing to do anymore in a, in a post-COVID world. Yeah. Well, it seems more and more the, the religions that refuse to change and grow with the way society thinks are the ones that are losing the most people. That's the way things seem to be looking. We'll watch to see what happens. Thank you so much for the report. Appreciate your time, Ashley. No worries. Thanks, guys. Ashley Stewart, national reporter for Global News. Well, if the provincial government moves ahead with its proposal to replace the RCMP with a provincial police force, what will the impact be on smaller communities here in the province? Joining us with insights into the needs of these communities is Okotoks Mayor Tanya Thorne. Good morning to you, Madam Mayor. Good morning, Andy. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us. Uh, First of all, are you in favor of replacing the RCMP? Uh, No, I'm not. (laughs) Um, I think looking at policing and looking at how we do uh, do policing in the province uh, is a good good exercise for us to go through. Um, but I, what I'm seeing right now with what's been proposed, I don't see how it actually makes our service better, makes us more efficient, and improves policing. So me personally, I do not think the move away from the RCMP is the right thing for us to do, especially right now in these economic times. So, Mayor, you know, looking at it from the perspective of Okotoks and and smaller communities across Alberta, how how would you be impacted by a change to a provincial police force? What, What would that even look like to your knowledge at this point with what's being proposed? Yeah, I think there's kind of three impacts. Um, one, there's the cost of a transition. So estimated cost of a transition right now is $360 million. Uh, that money's got to come from somewhere. And there's no guidance and clarity in the report that the province has released as to who's going to pay that. Um, and then there's also, so for my municipality, I'm, I have what's called a MPSA, a Municipal Police Service Agreement for the RCMP. So for my municipality, I cover 90% of my costs for policing through my municipal tax base. The other 10% is covered by the federal government. There's also no conversation around who's going to pay that, because if we leave Mm. from the RCMP, the feds aren't going to contribute anymore. So in the province of Alberta, that's about $170 million that the feds pick up the tab on. Um, and so, you know, between those two, we're now at over $500 million um, that is going to be or you have to be covered for policing. So the financial impact um, with little clarity is a big one. For me also on that as a municipality, because I pay 90% of my costs currently, the moving to a provincial police force the question needs to be asked of are all municipalities and all residents going to pay the same dollar amount for policing now? Because currently that isn't the case. Mm. So as an example, I, my residents pay 90 cents on every dollar for policing. 
whereas my neighboring county and many municipalities under 5,000, so those smaller municipalities in our rural communities, um, with the provincial funding model that's been paid, they're paying about 15 cents on every dollar. All right, so we're very much lasering in on this, you know, proposal and the talk around replacing the RCMP with that provincial police force. But when it comes to the RCMP and the way things are right now in your community, Mayor Thorne, are, are there things that the RCMP could be doing better to, to service the community from your uh, viewpoint? I, I think there's always options to improve service. Uh, we've got a great working relationship with our RCMP detachment in Okotoks. I regularly meet with the detachment commander around service delivery, new initiatives, um, and integration. So we're very lucky in our community. We've got a great integration between RCMP and many of our um, social support services. So we've got a community policing model that's created here where we're all, they're sharing information, having regular check-ins. We've got a great integration with our municipal police, um, our, our municipal police detachment as well. So they do a lot of work. They're in the same building and that could be expanded to many or um, detachments across the province, that same model. Uh, but I think that that's the core question that I have with us looking at a provincial police force. There's lots of talk in that around a provincial police force will allow the province to integrate and invest in public services and create more mental health support. And that exists here today. The province is in control of that budget right now. So if we have the money to do a transition at $360 million as an example, that that money could be found to transition, why are we not taking that same money and investing it in some of the real major drivers of crime in Alberta, like affordable housing, mental health, addiction issues, weaknesses in the justice system? Why are we not investing it there? Because we know that that will improve policing. Super important discussion. Thank you very much for sharing your perspective. Appreciate your time this morning. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That's Mayor Tanya Thorne, who is the mayor of Okotoks. And music certainly has the power to pick us up. There's Beyonce right now doing it for us. Uh, when we're down, it picks us up. When we want to work out, it pushes us through a tough workout, perhaps. Well, joining us this morning to look at the power of the playlist is Jennifer Buchanan, music therapist and author. Good morning, Jennifer. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. See, you like that song to start things off, right? It gets us going, gets your blood pumping. Why is it that music is so powerful, Jennifer? Oh, there are just so many ways. If we look at it from the science side, then we know how active our brain is when we listen to music, especially music that's familiar to us and inspires us. And so when it's this global brain process and all these areas are lighting up, we're seeing activity in our, our brain centers of mood, of memory, of motivations. We are anchoring back to some of those technicolor um, memories that we would have had in junior high and high school. And it does all this 
by releasing hormones and neurotransmitters that help us feel something. And what I really wanted to do with my book was to give us a guide of ways that we could use music, the power of a playlist, wellness well played, uh, to retrain um, this new mood that I think so many of us are ready for. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, in your research and in your experience, is there one genre or type of music or is it subjective, uh, you know, toward the listener? Yeah, it really is personal. And I think we can all feel that, that, you know, what's going to soothe you is not necessarily going to soothe me. Um, We can really feel that when we've got uh, young people in our home, what they're listening to and that's energizing them sometimes energizes us, but we might also have our own music that uh, works in that way. Jennifer, you mentioned the science of music, and I know there have been quite a few studies done. So, you know, beyond impacting our mood and our motivation, can it actually music change our, our mental state? Absolutely. And it can also work in the way. So one a question I get often um, is around is listening to sad music OK? And because what happens is if you're feeling sad, there are many people that gravitate to what some people would call sad music. But what they're actually doing is gravitating to music that validates them. And that's what we're wanting when we're needing to feel comforted or nurtured. We're looking to be understood. And music is this incredible resource that can give us that level of validation so we feel understood. Jennifer, I'm wondering, your book is called Wellness Well Played, The Power of a Playlist. What are the attributes, what are the ingredients of a good playlist? (laughs) So there are so many. I'm going to give everybody an exercise that they can work with because let's talk about our life soundtrack. And I don't know where everybody's at with age, but you can remember back with John Cusack and talking about the nuances and the high fidelity of this this. Uh, putting together the layers of a playlist. So what makes a good playlist is having a theme. And then if you put together your life soundtrack, you could break it down over decades. Having a piece of paper on your uh, desk or, or on your computer where you start just putting in the music that every time you hear that song, it takes you back to that imagery in, in full color of who you were with and what it meant to be there, how you felt while you were there. And we can put this together as something incredibly personal for ourselves. But like the old days, you know, when it was the mixtape, it might be also an opportunity for us to share with our family members the music we've been listening to over the years and asking them, what have you been listening to so we can connect in a newer and deeper way? I love it. And we can learn more at your website, jenniferbuchanan.ca. And of course, pick up the book, Wellness Well Played, The Power of a Playlist. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beef up my playlist after work today. Thank you. Terrific. <laughs> Appreciate Thank your you. time. Thanks. Jennifer Buchanan is a music therapist and author. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.